If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to find Romans chapter number 1. Romans chapter number 1, we have started a journey through the book of Romans or the letter to the Romans, the epistle to the Romans as uh, many of our Bibles report. And we find ourselves in chapter number 1, beginning in verse number 1. We want to read down through the first seven verses. I brought an introduction last week uh, about this text. And uh, just by way of review, remember uh, Paul in writing to the Romans. It was his desire to go there. And he was going there uh, so that he might be able to preach the gospel and also go to Spain. But we also know that there were some things happening in the culture there uh, in the city of Rome that really challenged the church. Uh, we know that according to history that this church came out of the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts when we find Jews coming to Rome starting a church. And as these individuals came and start this church, no apostle started the church. This was just a church plant from people that had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and were under deep conviction and wanted to worship on the first day of the week. They knew Judaism was not the answer. They knew Jesus Christ was the answer. And so they started this first century church. And as this first century church started, it blossomed. And Gentiles began to join the church. And again, just by way of review, they had a leadership change. And as that leadership uh, changed, if you would, uh, the, some things began to happen there in Rome. We know that uh, as Claudia was there and the emperor, uh, he was not happy with the gospel of Jesus Christ causing so much friction among the Jews. So in an act of desperation, he cast out all the Jews and sent them all away. And then when his reign was over, Nero came on the scene. And as Nero came on the scene, he's seeing the potential of Rome, how wonderful the economic structure of Rome could be, invited all the Jews to come back. And so during that transition, Jews leaving, Jews starting the church, Jews leaving the church, and Jews coming back to the church, we see the church was in a state, if you would, that uh, caused some real uh, dilemmas. The dilemma was that as the Jews left, those that were there, the Gentiles, kept the church at Rome going. But when the Jews came back to the church at Rome, they found themselves in a very unique situation. The Gentiles didn't want the Jews coming to church. They were uh, embracing a theology that's known today as replacement theology. And through that replacement theology, it just simply said that the Jews were being punished by God because of their rejection of Jesus Christ the Messiah and had been cast away and exiled from the church. And the, and the church, if you would, was the present-day recipients of all of the promises that was given to Israel in the Old Testament and all the promises that are coming uh, that we find in the prophecies to Israel in the future. There's nothing in the Scripture that talks about that. There's nothing in the scripture that says that replacement theology is accurate and right. The Bible clearly states that the Jews are the children of God. And as they are the children of God, they've got to come to Jesus Christ just like everybody else. They've got to receive Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord. And the Jews, uh, God's not done with the Jews. He's not finished with them. However, we see through the book of Daniel and also through the book of Revelation, we see that God has dealt with the nations and not just the Jews. God's desire is for everyone to be saved. 
And God says, according to the Word of God, and we'll see this more in Romans chapter 9 and chapter 10, where there is the sovereignty of God, but there is the responsibility of man. And through the combination of the two, we see God's beautiful mercy shown up. As the Bible says in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The desire of God's heart is that all men come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so he writes this letter, Paul does, he's in Corinth, and he writes this letter to the Romans, and he has to introduce himself because he doesn't know, or he's never been there, and they really don't know who he is. In this section of Scripture, in the first seven verses, we see it contains 126 words packed full of truth and care. The truth concerning who Paul is and the care coming from the focus on the gospel of God. It's an amazing introduction that starts with the Son of God and moves all the way to the saints that are in Rome. This morning, I want you to notice the first seven verses as we read it together. The Bible says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore, by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, for his name among whom... Are you also the called of Jesus Christ? To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. So Paul is introducing himself. He just wants the church to know who he is and to be identified with who he is. It reminds me of a story uh, of a middle-aged lady who... Uh, had some heart issues and ended up in the hospital. And while she was in the hospital, she had a heart attack and had a near-death experience. In this near-death experience, she saw God and she asked God, is my time up? And God says, no, ma'am, your time's not up. you got another 43 years, two months, and eight days. Upon recovering there in the hospital, the lady decided that she would have a little work done. She got a facelift, liposuction, a tummy tuck. She thought, I might as well look good. I got 43 more years left. After her stay was over at the hospital, she packed up her things and was walking. And as she was walking to her car, an ambulance came by and ran over and killed her, just like that. Standing in heaven, she looked up and she said, well, I, I thought I had 43 years left. To which the Lord said, oh, my sweet child, I'm sorry. I didn't recognize you. <laughs> Paul really wanted this church to recognize him. He wanted them to recognize who he was. And so when we look at this past of Scripture, we see that there are basically four divisions in this greeting that I want to call your attention to this morning. Notice number one, the first one is found in verse number one, and I want you to see the messenger of God. The messenger of God. If you have your pens, pencil, lipstick, or mascara, I would underline, highlight, or circle the word Paul. Paul. Three things concerning Paul who is the messenger of God. Number one, the first thing I want you to notice is he is a servant 
of Jesus Christ. The term servant here in verse number 1 uh, is a very fascinating word. As a matter of fact, there are six Greek words that symbolize the word servant or servitude. Uh, from all of the Greek words, all six of these Greek words, Paul deliberately chooses the strongest word to describe his servanthood. It's a term in the Greek that's called doulos. It is a picture of a slave market. And if you imagine in your mind a slave market and a slave standing on the auctioneer's stand and the auctioneer auctioning him off, someone buys this slave and pays for this slave. And what Paul is trying to do is to paint this picture in our mind saying that he is a doulos of Jesus Christ. He is a servant. He is a slave. He has been purchased by Jesus Christ. And everything that he does is for his master, Jesus Christ. Now, slavery has been an awful, awful thing that has happened in the United States of America. It is awful that it happened at any point in any form of history. But culturally speaking, Paul uses this example and this word to point to the fact that as a born-again child of God, we are a bondservant, we are a slave, if you would, we're a doulos of Jesus Christ. It's such an important word saying that Jesus has control of our lives. He says, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. And then number two, the second thing he says in the text is he says that he is a called apostle. You see it there in the text, called to be an apostle. Now, you find in the Word of God, the word to be should be italicized there in your Bibles. That is an implied phrase. The translators in translating this thought that it would carry it a little bit further. It would carry the text and the context to include the words to be. So we see here in the text, he's speaking here not of a future role. This is not a future role of Paul who was called uh, to be an apostle. But this is a calling that came to him at the moment of his salvation. And he says that he, in fact, was and is an apostle. Now what's fascinating about the word apostle, it's where we get our English word missionary. But what a missionary means today and what a missionary uh, meant back then in the form of apostle are two different things. You see, in order to be apostle, there are two things that must have happened to that person who has apostleship. Number one, the first thing is this. They must have seen the risen Lord. That was the requirement. You had to see the risen Lord. On two occasions in the book of Corinthians, Paul even uh, really uh, carries a strong question as he says, Have I not seen the risen Lord? His reference is returning back to the day to which he got saved. He's saying, I saw the Lord. I saw him with my own eyes. I saw the risen Lord. He talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So he's seen the risen Lord. But number two, here's the second requirement of a New Testament apostle. That the call must have come directly from the Lord himself. The call must directly come from the Lord himself. Remember, God spoke to Ananias in Acts chapter 9 in verse number 15. And God said about Paul, he is my chosen vessel. He is a chosen vessel. 
uh, we see here in respect to this that God in calling the twelve, he called the twelve uh, apostles, he called the twelve disciples if you would, but he also called Paul and Paul is making the case. He is saying, like the twelve, I too have been a chosen vessel of God. I was called personally by Him. Now this is vitally important because we're living in a culture today where you may turn on TVN, can I get a witness right there, and you might find an apostle. Might I say, brothers and sisters in Jesus, please do not check your brain or your heart when you turn on one of those programs and see the apostle. Apostles today that carry the name apostle are not the same as a biblical apostle. Today, apostles are made by succession, by election, by self-assumption, but not by the way of the Bible. We find in Scripture that there were only the 12 apostles as well as Paul. Paul was an apostle, and he's making the case before the Romans here as he says, I'm a servant, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ, and I've been called an apostle by God himself. He called me. I've seen the risen Lord, and he drew me in that respect. Now, let me say this. When we use the term missionary, it is not saying that we are an apostle. We're using the term missionary as a term by which we say a representative, an individual that is carrying the gospel all around. We all, as born-again children of God, ought to be missionaries. But in respect to apostles, Paul was saying to the church at Rome, I am an apostle, I've seen the risen Lord with my own eyes, and I've been called by, by him, by my own ears. Now let me say this if I could very quickly in relationship to the time that I have, and I'm going to go very quickly here in just a few moments. I have never seen the risen Lord with my own eyes. I haven't seen him with my own eyes. One day, I will see him. I'll see him. And what a day that's going to be. Paul, however, says, I have seen him, and I've heard his calling. I was at a banquet last night, and I was sitting by a gentleman, a representative on our commission, uh, one of our commission boards, and it was just a wonderful time, a wonderful opportunity to be with him, and we had a great, uh, we were great talking to, to him, just enjoyed my conversation with him, and as we were talking, he said, so tell me, how does one become a pastor? How did you get into this line of work? And I shared my testimony with him, how that this is not something that I I felt like it was a job that I wanted to do. But I felt like this was a calling that God was calling me to, that my original intent was to go into to the nursing and to go into health care. And I was uh, enrolled at Gadsden State and was moving in that direction when I just felt uneasy in my spirit. I didn't hear an audible voice. I didn't, the heavens didn't open. And, and, and God didn't say, Shay, leave this education and go to seminary. He didn't say that. But I had this uneasiness inside of me, this burden inside of me. And I prayed and sought God's face and even went to my dad and I said, Dad, I don't understand this. I'm just not happy with where I'm at. And my dad just said this to me and I was sharing this with this individual. I said, my dad said, son, what would you do for free if you knew all your needs would be taken care of? 
I said, Dad, there's only been one thing in my life that I've enjoyed, and I've really just enjoyed, and that's serving the Lord. Whether that be helping people or sharing the gospel or, or being with God's people or teaching God's people, I just, I've, I, that's where I'm the happiest. I'd do that for nothing if it was possible. And my dad looked at me with full of wisdom and said, Son, I know God's got a calling on your life. I see that. And it's a calling. And you'll never be happy until you answer that call. Right then and there, my dad and I talked about it, prayed about it. And that very next week, uh, it was a few weeks later, not the next week. It was a few weeks later after prayer. I walked the aisle of my home church, and I gave my hand to my pastor, and I said, I'm surrendering, I'm putting my yes on the table, and I'm saying, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'm fully dependent upon you with open hands. I want to be your missionary. And God put me in ministry. When Paul wrote to the Romans, he simply says this. God put him in ministry. And the ministry that he put him in was that of an apostle. The ministry that God put me in is that of a pastor. He tells them there that he was called an apostle. Notice the third thing he says very quickly. He said he was separated, separated to the gospel. When you look at Paul's life, you see that there's three separations in his life outside of this one. Really four if you count this one. There are four separations in Paul's life. Paul talked about in Galatians chapter 1 verse 15 how uh, God's hand was on his life. Even from the beginning, as he said, he was separated. God separated him from his mother's womb. Galatians chapter 1 verse 16. Uh, The Bible also says in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus that God separated him from the world. And then in Acts chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, the Bible tells us that Antioch, when the Holy Spirit said to him, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas. There were three other works of separation in Paul's life, but here we find that he is also separated unto the gospel of God. You see it there in the text, separated unto the gospel of God. Now, Paul was a purchased slave, a called apostle, a separated preacher, and a born-again, blood-bought Christian that we look to and see that as examples, you and I, As a Christian, we too have been purchased of God, called by God, and separated by God in the Lord Jesus Christ, not as apostles, but as disciples, and we're born again children of God, carrying the gospel to the furthest regions of the world. And remember this, church. The church that shines the furthest always shines the brightest at home. Number two, the second thing I want you to note is not only the messenger of God, but I want you to see the message of God. The message of God. Look at what the Bible says in the latter part of verse number one. He tells us that he was separated into the gospel of God. Note, look at verse two, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scripture. Two things we find here in regards to the message of God. Number one, it is, uh, in fact, the good news which was promised by God. What's he referring to? What's Paul talking about when he says the gospel was promised? You have to take your Bibles and go all the way back to Genesis chapter number 3. Genesis chapter 3, in verse number 15, we find what's called the proto-evangelium. 
the proto-evangelium. Say, man, that's a big word. I don't think I understand it. I want to help you with it. It's important enough for you to understand what the proto-evangelium is. Proto means, it's where we get our English word, prototype. Prototype, a prototype is what? It is an example of something that needs to be built and manufactured, uh, if you would, for distribution all over the world, all over the place. Uh, so there's prototypes. I remember when the prototype of the Tesla car came out. Everybody was up in the air about this prototype of Tesla. And now, bless God, you can't even charge them in California. Can I get a witness right there? <laughs> Lord have mercy. Why did you go there, Shane? I'm sorry. I don't mean to. I don't mean to. But here in, in chapter 3 of Genesis, in verse number 15, you have what's called the Proto-Evangelium. It is the prototype, if you would, of the real thing. And that is the fact that Jesus the Messiah is coming. Look at what the scripture says. Uh, God says, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Here is a reference to none other than the Messiah. He's speaking of Jesus Christ. Paul is referring back to Genesis chapter 3 when he makes the comment that it was, if you would, it was promised. It was promised. And then, number two, the second thing, not only does he say that it was promised, but he also says it was also prophesied. It was prophesied. Look at what the Scripture says there in verse number two again. He says, "...by his prophets in the Holy Scripture." Paul is going to demonstrate throughout this letter to the Romans, he's going to quote 61 times. 61 times Paul is going to quote Old Testament prophecies regarding Jesus Christ as the Messiah. He's going to use Genesis five times, Exodus four times, Leviticus two times, Deuteronomy five times, 1 Kings two times, Psalms 15 times, Proverbs two times, Isaiah two, 19 times, Ezekiel one time, Hosea two times, Joel one time, Nahum one time, Habakkuk one time, and Malachi one time. From Genesis to Malachi, he is going to make reference to the prophecies of God stating that Jesus Christ is who he says that he is, and this gospel was promoted in the Old Testament. Don't you dare listen to some of these punk rock preachers that are out there today who are so popular, and they strut around. I mean, they just all over the place, and they'll say something like this. The, New the Old Testament is not important. You don't need to read it. Don't you dare listen to that. The Bible says all of Scripture is important. It's all been given to us. And here Paul is going to make reference again 61 times to the fact that the gospel is in the Old Testament. The message of God. The good news of God. Number three, the third thing I want you to notice is the Messiah of God. The Messiah of God. In verses 3 through 6, Paul again introducing himself says that he is a messenger of God. He's got the message of God and he is going to communicate the Messiah of God. Look at what he says in verse number 3. He says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which uh, was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. This is power packed. This is a sermon in and of itself. But let me give it to you very briefly if I could. He talks about the Messiah of God dealing with first and foremost his name. Did you notice his name? 
Did you notice the Messiah's name? His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. These words were chosen specifically under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. He just didn't throw these things out. He wanted to make sure he emphasized Jesus' unique relationship to the Father, so he called him his Son. He wanted to demonstrate and highlight the humanity of Jesus Christ, so he called him Jesus. He wanted to highlight, if you would, also the messianic office that Jesus held, so he called him Christ. He wanted to exemplify the exalted position of the person of Jesus Christ, so he called him Lord. He is Son, Jesus Christ, Lord. His name is power. His name is healing. His name is life. Not only do you see his name, but you also see his humanity. Look at what the scripture says again in the text. He said he was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. This is Paul's testimony of the virgin birth. It was his focus on Jesus' humanity or the flesh pointing to his heritage, saying that this Messiah is unlike any other. He was 100% man and 100% God. He's speaking here, if you would, of the Davidic uh, of the Davidic covenant. First Samuel, excuse me, Second Samuel chapter 7 talks about the Davidic covenant where God had pl- promised David, he'd made a promise to David that the king, the Messiah, would come from him. And in him coming from, if you would, David, we see it exemplified in First Chronicles chapter 17, verses 11 through 14. And again in Second Chronicles chapter 6, in verse 16. He's speaking here of Jesus' humanity. Heaven came down and glory filled our soul. Number two, not only, do, or excuse me, number three, not only does he speak of his humanity, but he also speaks of his divinity. His divinity. Look at what the scripture says again. He says, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection uh, from the dead. Uh, so, So much here. Let me just point out this one word, declared. The word declared means to mark out by a sure sign. To mark out by a sure sign. What was the sure sign of Jesus' Messiahship? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, you could pick anything. You could talk about the virgin birth. You could talk about the sinless life. You could talk about the miracles. But I'm telling you, the resurrection, the resurrection is where we find the divinity of Jesus Christ in relationship to His sovereignty and His great power. Up from the grave He arose. And then we see, fourth of all, his authority. You see the scripture there? Notice what the Bible says. The Bible says, by whom we have received grace and apostleship. Uh, The apostle received this gift of office of apostleship by the grace of God. God's grace is referring here uh, to everything that God has established and given to uh, Paul in respect to his salvation, his apostleship, and his also the letter that he's writing to them. And then we see here, uh, all in the latter part of this verse, Paul closes this point as he uh, points to Jesus as being the Messiah uh, of God by giving three divisions of his apostleship 
in taking it to a close. He talks about the purpose of his apostleship is to promote obedience to faith. You see it there in the text. He says to, uh, to promote this obedience to the faith. He talks about the scope of his apostleship among the nations that the nations might know Jesus Christ as Savior and the motive of his apostleship for Jesus' name sake we see the messiah of god we see the message of god we see the messenger of god but in verse number seven i want you to notice this very quickly i want you to see the members of god's church the members of god's church verse number seven clearly says there in the text to all that be in rome beloved of god called to be saints grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, again, in verse number 7, you see the word to be. There is another implied phrase there. He's simply saying that these that have been called by Jesus Christ, they are saints. They are the called ones. Who are the called ones? The called ones are Christians. We are the called ones. And so when you look at the members of God, he uses the term saints, speaking of all the saved members of the church at Rome. And then he simply says uh, just a few things here that are worthy of our attention in closing. Number one, he says they're called of Jesus Christ. That is, they are the called ones of Jesus Christ. The, the question we have to answer as human beings is this. Whom's are you? Who do you belong to? Who do you belong to? I belong to Jesus. I promise you, you belong to something. If you don't belong to Jesus, you may belong to the devil, the world, the flesh. You belong to your job, your money. People all over this world belong to, belong to so many things. Yet Paul says the called of God belong to Jesus Christ. And then notice number two, he says this, that they're beloved of God. Beloved of God. Roman believers were loved by God. Why is this important? Remember Paul is establishing the fact that Jews and Gentiles both are loved by God. And that as a born-again child of God, there should not be a church on this planet that does not welcome anybody to come hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, we were having this conversation again yesterday. I was at a banquet last night and was asked to, 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 to do the invocation, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. had a wonderful, wonderful experience, a, a wonderful time. But in my communication, in speaking with this gentleman that I was with, we were talking about this, this uh, uh, challenge of conviction in the 21st century. And, and I just said, look, I, I said, I just want you to clearly understand where I stand on this. I don't want you walking out of here scratching your head wondering where this preacher stands. Everybody, everybody on this planet is welcome to come to Maysville Baptist Church. But don't you dare tell me what I'm going to preach and what I'm not going to preach. I'm going to preach the living Word of God. And let, listen, I'll be honest with you, it's offensive. It's offensive in this culture. And look, I want you to understand, I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm not trying to be on a high horse. I don't want to be a bully. That's not my desire. That's not my calling. But my calling is to preach the Word of God. And listen, in preaching the Word of God, 
That means you got to preach the good and you got to preach the bad. And I have never in my life experienced when I preach, like when I preach through the book of 1 Peter, I preach through the book of 1 Peter and say, suffering's coming, suffering's coming, suffering's coming. I'm telling you, I'm living it today. Suffering's coming. And I hope that you'll look at my life and see that God is still in control. He's still on the throne. He hadn't forsaken us. He loves us. And the gospel is still moving forward. See, you, you, you. we're called of Jesus Christ, beloved of God. Y'all keep clapping. I'm going to preach on through the next service. Bless God. Y'all keep on. Man, where am I at? He says they're beloved of God. God loves us. Look at what he says in the latter part. I've got to close because they're going to be waiting out there looking in here. You see, I, from my perspective, I see them peering in the window. She just wave at them. <laughs> called to be saints. You see that they are called. The members of God are called to be saints. We are called, again, to be is not in relationship to the love of God. Please, I want you to hear my heart. You're going to see this in chapter 9 and chapter 10. But he's already setting the stage of the love of God. He's not saying they're called to be as a future tense. He's saying they're called. They are called today. They're called today in relationship to this calling. They're called of Jesus Christ. In called of Jesus Christ, they are called saints. This this will rock your world if you'll let it. I'm telling you, we see in the scriptures that saints are Christians. They're people that have trusted Christ as Savior. It's not a status that a person elevates a person to in a religious sense. A saint is a born-again child of God that God himself calls you a saint. Here's the problem. We don't live like it, do we? That's the challenge. We don't live like saints. We need a paradigm shift in relationship to being saints. And that paradigm shift should be simply this. That we stop living thinking that we are sinners that are sometimes saints, but that we need to look at it through this lens, that we are saints that sometimes sin. But through God's glory and through His plan, the message of the gospel, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Righteousness. The question that I have for you this morning in Paul's introduction, as he says, this is who I am. This is who I am. This is why I'm coming to you. He simply wants the congregation to know that God knows him. God knows him. Here's my question to you this morning. Does God know you? Does God know you? Father, I pray that we would settle this in our heart today, that God knows us. For your glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask uh, Lee to come and to lead us in a hymn of invitation. I want to invite everyone to stand. We're going to sing one verse. But here's my challenge to you today. If you do not know if God knows you or not, say, I don't know if God knows me. I want to invite you to come. I want to invite you to come. Let me show you how God can know you and you can know him. In Jesus' name, let's sing together.